0: Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Academy. I'm Alison Bracker. I'm the Events and Lectures Manager here. I'm delighted to welcome you all uh, to tonight's lecture by Tim Winton. Tonight is the last evening lecture for our Australia exhibition, in support of our Australia exhibition. I can't think of any better way to end it than by introducing Tim Winton, who has published 25 books for adults and children, and whose work has been translated into 28 languages. Since his first novel, An Open Swimmer, won the Australian Vogel Award in 1981, he has won the Miles Franklin Award four times for Shallows, Dirt Music, and Breath, as well as Cloud Street, which is commonly considered to be the great Australian novel. He has also twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for writers and for dirt music. Tim Winton's most recent novel, Airy, was released in Australia last month. Although it will not be published in the UK until May 2014, The Guardian has already reviewed it, stating, Area is a superb novel, a novel of disillusionment and redemption, loss and beauty, the taking of responsibility, and the overcoming of disappointment. This is Tim Winton on top form. Please welcome Tim Winton.
1: Thank you, Alison. It's um, it's very strange to be here. but it's nice of you to come because uh, it would have been even stranger if uh, it was just me. I mean, Alison would have come, but that could have been even stranger. <laughs> just, uh, anyway, thanks for coming and it's lovely to be in such a, an august building and, a, and a, such an august room in, uh, in such a building. Um, I, I feel like a bit of a fake, really, to be here, um, but uh, I'm not going to do about that now. I'm, I am here. <laughs> What's done is done. Um, I'm not going to uh, speak directly about the, um, the show. Uh, I think there's been a lot of other commentary um, about it. I think all the, all the prefects have already spoken. Um, and, but uh, I just thought I might talk at a, at a sort of a tangent to it in a little bit, in a, in a, in a way, in terms of talking about... Um, what you can obviously see is the chief influence on, on, the, on, the, on our art and what I suspect is a, a major influence on our literature and it's certainly a, the prime influence on my, my work and its landscape. So I'll just barrel into this uh, speech I've got here and, um, and hopefully I'll get through it and you, most of you will still be awake and then feel free to um, uh, have a conversation. Um, we'll have a pop quiz. <laughs> Or a sing-along, somebody's already suggested that. I grew up on on, um, the world's largest island. And it's a bald fact that uh, slips from consciousness so easily that I'm uh, obliged to remind myself, even me, now and again, of that fact. But in an age when uh, a culture looks first to politics and ideology to examine itself, perhaps my forgetting something so basic should come as no surprise. After all, our minds are often elsewhere. The material facts of life, the organic and concrete forces that shape us, are so often overlooked as if they're irrelevant or even mildly embarrassing. Our creaturely existence is registered, it seems to me, registered, measured, discussed and represented in increasingly abstract terms. And perhaps, perhaps this helps explain uh, how somebody like me, who really should know better, can forget even momentarily that he is an islander. Australia, the place, is constantly overshadowed by Australia, the national idea, Australia, the economic enterprise. And there's no doubt that the nation and its projects have shaped my education and my prospects. But the degree to which geography and distance and weather have moulded my sensory palate, my imagination and my expectations um, is substantial. And the evidence of this continues to surprise me uh, even in middle age. Later middle age as I'm now beginning to call it. <laughs> the island continent has not simply been background to my life and work. To my life it's been pivotal, to my work it's been a central, vital concern, a source of agitation and inspiration. Landscape has exerted a kind of force upon me that's every bit as geological as family and every bit as familial as uh, geography. Like many Australians, I feel this tectonic grind most keenly when I'm abroad. The first time I left the island I was 28 and I say left the island because um, going abroad doesn't really cut it because here you can jump in a cab and you can duck down to King's Cross Station and, the, and in the time it takes to watch a, you know, a, a Terence Malick film, um, <laughs> you are abroad but you may not be quite as overseas as I was and as I am now. Living in Europe in the 1980s, I made the mistake of thinking that what separated me from the natives of this exotic hemisphere was just a matter of language and history, as if I really was the mongrel European transplant of my formal education. Such was the blinkered narrative of my schooling. In Australia, by the 1970s, we'd pretty much moved on from being... children children of empire we were now by then more or less our own show out there in the uh, Asia Pacific I love it how it in in contemporary Australia we talk about ourselves as being in the Asia Pacific neglecting to remember that one third of the continent the bit that I happen to live on is floating around in the southern ocean and um, the Indian Ocean but we've moved on within the Asia Pacific anyway (laughs) I'm not going to win that fight even then, we'd long ago rejected the notion of being branch office Brits. In fact, we were, in my adolescence, um, militantly un-British. And yet I was still taught, largely by um, bourgeois Marxists in uh, English departments, that I was, essentially, whether I liked it or not, a European. Which strikes me now as a rather sloppy way of uh, reminding somebody that, uh, that they're not um, an Aborigine. An Aborigine. And not that accurate anyway. Because the moment that I stepped off a plane at Charles de Gaulle, I knew I wasn't a European. I was just pink-skinned. And worse, I was, as you can now see, of fragmentary pigmentation. The austral sun has, as you can see, confused even my whiteness. You should have seen me when I was 10. I was as freckly as a trying to find a polite word for that. <laughs> I was frankly, I was very freckly. But yes, I did happen to speak English. My own brand of English, apparently, and obviously no brand of French that anybody in history had ever heard before <laughs> uh, or since. But I was not English and I was not European. And until that first mortifying uh, afternoon in Paris, I don't think I'd ever given my geography sufficient credit and neither of course had those good folks who, um, who taught me. They were simply educated in the narrow trenches of their own disciplines. They taught what they knew and being indoor folk of the inner city enclave, they knew very little about the natural sciences, about ecology and about geography. Theirs sadly was an abstract world before it was a physical, spatial reality. And the physical, sensual world was probably just as much of mystery to them as it is to the evangelical fundamentalist, of which I have some experience. So there I was in France at 28, trying desperately to fit in, and obviously failing. Unsettled, of course, by gaps of language and history, but completely rattled by by my responses to the physical world in this new hemisphere, or this new old hemisphere, The cities and the villages uh, of the so-called old world were enchanting. They are enchanting. But outside them I felt that all my sensory wiring was um, scrambled. Because when I'd expected to merely appreciate uh, the monuments of Europe but to love the natural environment, the reality was totally the other way. The immense beauty of buildings and streetscapes had an immediate and uh, a visceral impact on me. I was more or less swooning, I have to confess. And yet in the natural world, where I'm generally more comfortable, I was hesitant, um, diffident, and I have to confess, even a little bit sniffy. You know, while I was duly impressed by what I saw of the, the natural environment, I found that I could never quite connect emotionally with where I was and what I was seeing. Being from a, a flat dry continent, um, I actually had been looking forward to the prospect of soaring Alps and thundering rivers, lush valleys and fertile plains and yet when I actually beheld them I was puzzled by how how sort of muted my responses were. As I said, a Eurocentric education had prepared me for a sense of recognition that I simply didn't feel and it was bewildering. The paintings uh, and the the poems uh, about these epic and apparently sublime landscapes still moved me and they move me to this day. So I just couldn't understand the queer feeling of impatience that crept up when I saw them in real time and space. And you might ask, you know, before you start getting defensive, you might ask, weren't these landforms and panoramas beautiful? Well, of course they were. Although I have to confess that I did find that a little bit of them went a long way. (laughs) I'm going to get myself in real trouble here, aren't I? (laughs) Because to somebody from an austere, sun-bleached landscape, um, these places often look, I don't quite know how I should put this, they looked cute. Um, They were pretty. Uh, And certain times they even seemed so pretty as to seem a bit over the top, a bit... Saccharin, like something off a biscuit tin. You can burn me at the stake later, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Not that I ever said anything, of course. I, I was way too anxious and well brought up um, to say anything. But all, this, all the same, I did have this, while I was living in Europe, I had this secret nagging sensation that I simply wasn't getting it. And in the first instance, I struggled with Scale. In Europe, the dimensions of physical space seemed to me to be compressed. The looming vertical presence of mountains seemed to cut me off from the distant horizon. This was a kind of spatial curtailment that I'd never experienced before. And you have to think about it. Even a, even a city like London or a city like Sao Paulo, a city of skyscrapers, even that is more porous than a snow-capped mountain range. And you think about it, Alps form a, a solid, visual and conceptual barrier, and their crags and bluffs don't just loom up; they lean outward, they, they project their mass, and their solidity doesn't relent. And for a West Australian, whose default setting is in diametric opposition to this, for whom space is the major impinging force, um, the effect, you know, is w- was and continues to be claustrophobic. And the second form of enclosure that weighed on me was more obvious. The European landscape was humanised. Even the wildest looking places were modified, including many of those seemingly implacable mountains that I was talking about because it seemed that around every second bend was a, a tunnel or a funicular or a chairlift or a resort and above the snow line there was usually a circling helicopter. And beyond the chopper, there was a tracery of jet contrails testifying to the thousands travelling the European skies at any given moment. Down in the valleys and along what seemed to me the impossibly fertile plains, nature was only visible through the overlaid embroidery of the people who had brought it to heel. And in Ireland and in France, in England, it seemed to me that every field and hedge was named... Apportioned, owned, subsidised and accounted for. And it was a landscape of almost unrelieved captivity and domestication. If they weren't fully inhabited or exploited, most open spaces were modified. So there actually were no real forests, only plantations and woods. Even conservation reserves were more akin to sculpted parks than actual wilderness. In fact, there were very few truly wild places left. And even the northern sky felt inhabited. At my lowest moments, and there were only a few of them, the European sky looked occluded, like um, the surface of a ruined eye. On a bright day in Wales or in the Netherlands, the light struck me as gorgeous, but it, it struck me as... Blue or slaty, as if someone in the heavens had sort of stopped pedalling, uh, as if there was some kind of power failure, a bit of a brown out, or a blue out perhaps. And I'd never experienced light deprivation before. Um, I really couldn't understand the gruesome moods that I was suddenly subject to, um, as if I, someone like me needed any more gruesome moods than I already have. So I guess that was a late insight into um, Ibsen and Kierkegaard. Um, <laughs> And the rest of it can probably be accounted for by thinking about a diet of pork and um, potatoes. So uh, I think there's a, obviously a thesis about constipation awaiting uh, <laughs> this, somebody doing Scandinavian studies. Um, and I, I woke up one June morning in, in the Irish Midlands thinking that I'd left the bedside light on. And then I realised after a few seconds' confusion that um, the sun was tilting in through the narrow window as lukewarm and unannounced, as a relative. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't only light deprivation that left me feeling a little bit sapped. I I think I was instinctively, unconsciously measuring space and always coming up short. I was searching for distances that were simply unavailable. Uh, And it took a few months to absorb what was going on. I realised that I was calibrated differently. To a European, and then the difference wasn't really just linguistic or historical. The distinction was geographical, and that is corporeal. I remember being in a in a, in a seedy um, cinema on the Rue de Tomes in Paris, watching Disney's um, Peter Pan with my three-year-old son, and I found that al- although that we were all gazing at the same screen in the flickering dark. He and I, my little boy and I, were, were seeing a different film to uh, to the rest of the audience. What seemed fantastical and exotic to those bourgeois Parisian kids and their nannies um, it just looked like home to me. You know, as, as perverted by um, Walt Disney, but um, <laughs> close enough, uh, as homesick as I was. Because I knew... Um, Secret coves and hidey holes like that of the of the Lost Boys. The world of rocky islands, boats, and obscuring bush was very much like my own. Perhaps only the uh, the cold, lonely nursery up there in the uh, Darling attic was exotic, or fantastical to us. The wild opportunity of Neverland, with its physical openness, uh, its lack of enclosure, and freedom from adult surveillance. Uh, was not so far from the ecosystem of my boyhood and of my sons. So watching that movie for for perhaps the, I don't know, the 30th time and seeing it completely anew, um, forsaking the business of the story altogether um, and just focusing impulsively, uh, rather hungrily I admit, um, on the setting, on the backdrop I understood what a complete stranger I was um, in this hemisphere. And yet acknowledging that strangeness made the years that I had um, abroad so much more enjoyable and easier to digest. I I learned a lot about myself. When I was born, there was about a square kilometre for every Australian. And in global terms, that's an immense uh, amount of space. In the UK, on average, I think about 256 people share that space. Not literally that space, obviously. We're talking, you know, with density. Um, And in London, um, 5,200 people would share that space. In the half-century since I was born, well, half-century in a bit, I'll have to be honest, um, Australia's population has doubled. But density is still um, exceptionally low by world standards. Despite a human history of perhaps I don't know, everyone argues, but maybe 60,000 years Australia is a place with more geography than architecture, where openness will always trump enclosure. The continent has not been a lost and silent rock uh, floating in Austral seas, of course, all that time. It's not been, and it is not empty. For most of human history, it has been walked and sung. It's hatched and laced with story. And yet there's always been more space between these cultural lines than settled perennial inhabitation. Occupation in many reasons was either in a, occupation in many regions was either seasonal or notional held in cultural skeins and webs of ritual. Because of vast distances and scarcity of permanent water, the non-human was always in the, in the ascendant. Country may have been intimately known, but culture rarely dominated physically, even where land um, was modified by fire. Culture proceeded from and deferred to country from sheer necessity and then, of course, from the mythology that's organic to its sustenance. Artifacts were comparatively ephemeral. In two centuries after European settlement and its rapid transformations, Australia is still a place where there's more landscape than culture. Our island resists the levels of containment and settlement that prevail on most other continents and I suspect it probably always will. Now, I don't mean to imply that Australia has no culture or that its cultural life is inconsiderable. I just want to acknowledge that the continent's natural forms remain its most distinguishing features. Most Asian and European countries can be more easily defined, I think, in human terms. If you mention India or China, Italy, France, Germany, you quickly bring to mind um, human acts and human artefacts. But at first blush, uh, Australia connotes something non-human because no post-invasion achievement, no city nor towering monument can ever hold a candle to the grandeur of the land. And that's not a a romantic notion um, unless you think of mining as a romantic activity. And we have a few (laughs) prominent citizens who do. um, And they'll they'll even write poems about it. Everything we do in our country is still overshadowed and, quite importantly, underwritten by the seething tumult of nature. And yes, you know, an opera house, an iron bridge, a tinsel-topped tower, these are creative marvels. But as structures in in a context, they look pretty feeble, really, against the landscape in which they stand. When you think of the brooding mass and the ever-changing face of Uluru, which people here would perhaps know as Ayers Rock, you wonder, will will the architects ever make stone live like that? I doubt it. When you consider the bewildering scale and complexity of Pernalulu, which people know as the Bungle Bungles, uh, which feature in at least one of the paintings in the show, um, which is just like a sculpted secret megacity... It's it's an incredible place. I don't think Australians are ever going to build anything as beautiful or as intricate as that. few visitors to our shores arrive seeking the built glories um, of our culture, whether we like it or not. Generally they come for wildness, to experience space in a way that's unavailable or sadly sometimes now unimaginable in their own homelands. And look, I'm not much of a romantic and my wife will vouch for me there. Um, but neither am I a self-hating, Europe, uh, self-hating utopian as um, some of my critics um, might suggest, generally on the right wing of politics. Um, I am in awe of the genius in humanity and I actually love being in the great cities of the world. It's true, some buildings really do feel like gifts not in positions. But I suspect that I am Antipodean enough to wonder now and then um, whether architecture is, in the end, what you console yourself with once wild landscape has been subsumed. I guess I say this because space was my primary inheritance. I was formed by gaps. I was nurtured in the long pauses between people, part of a thin and porous human culture through which the land slanted in, seen or felt um, at every angle. So that when I was a kid for every mechanical noise there were five natural sounds to uh, overlay it. For every built structure there was always a landform twice as large and 20 times as complex standing behind it. And over all that, an impossibly open sky dwarfing everything and imposing a pitiless correction of human perspective. On my island, the heavens draw you out like a multi-dimensional horizon and in the south, which boils with gothic clouds, the sky's commotion can render your thoughts so feverish um, that they're closer to music than language. At night in the desert, the sky sucks at you star by star, galaxy, by galaxy. You feel, honestly, as if you could fall out into the sky at any moment. And it's terrifying. It's vertiginous. I've literally woken in a panic, um, digging my hands into the dirt on either side of the swag, just to keep from pitching out into space. I'll still go back, though. In Australia, the the sky is not the safe, enclosing canopy that it appears to be um, in other places. It's the wispiest um, membrane imaginable. It seems hardly sufficient as a barrier between earthbound creatures and eternity. You can be standing alone on a nullarbor or out on a salt pan the size of a small country and you feel a twinge of terror even in daylight because the sky seems to go on forever and yet it also comes right down to your shoulders, around your ears. It has dramatic depth and oceanic movement, which is to say, I suppose, that it it renders itself in um, <clears throat> realistic uh, representational terms. Um, the sky is not the gestural flat plane. It's too troubling, too potent to be charmingly one-dimensional. So in that sense, the sky is not very modern. <laughs> so often the southern sky stops you in your tracks, it derails your thoughts, it un- unmoors you from uh, whatever you were doing before it took you by the collar. So it's no wonder that Australian painters still insist on treating it as a worthy subject despite the pressures to um, you know, to move on and uh, do something a little more sophisticated. And it's nice to see um, Philip Wolfhagen uh, who is probably our most sky-obsessed painter um, represented in, in, in the show here even if it's not the sky the skyiest and cloudiest of his paintings um, Sometimes it seems to me that our continent is more about air than matter more pause than movement more space than time The landscape is not yet humanised and this is, is what distinguishes it For the moment, Australia is still itself this is how it continues to impose in its peculiar way and why it never lets go. It imprints itself upon the body and then the mind has to constantly struggle to, uh, to catch up and make sense of it. And this is why despite the postmodern and almost uh, post-physical age that we seem to be living and working in, Australian writers and painters continue to obsess about landscape. And It's not simply that we're laggards we are in a place where the material facts of life must still be contended with. There is more of it than us. And this disparity and the physical details and the peculiarities of the continent are strong and distinct enough to amaze and trouble and inspire us. And yes, we're, we're still learning. The meeting of the human and the non-human across our thin and ancient and sadly infertile topsoil is a drama that's still in its early and vital stages. Elsewhere in the world, this story is very often done and dusted already, with nature in stumbling retreat. But in Australia, where a small population negotiates with a a larger, extant and dynamic natural environment, this drama is still unresolved. Our life in nature remains an open question, and how we answer it won't just define our culture, but I think it's going to define our very survival. Whether this fact is widely acknowledged or not, interaction with nature is still a crucial and pressing aspect of Australian life and artists can't ignore this drama any more than politicians. To be a writer or an artist preoccupied with landscape is to accept a, a, a weird, really, a weird and constant tension between the indoors and the outdoors the abstract and the sensual, um, the idea um, and matter because you work from the mind and the body and for that you need, whether you like it or not, to be thin-skinned, which has its challenges. Um, I'm particularly thin-skinned about weather. Um, I'll talk about it all the time. I can bore you about it forever. Uh, I promise I won't. But I do have a craving for physical sensation um, to be out in a dynamic living system. So I seem to spend half my working life fretting uh, and plotting escape like a schoolboy. When I was a kid, if you sat me next to a window, I was a complete dead loss. You wouldn't get any work out of me. And sadly, I remain um, that way to this day. So I have to make myself uh, write indoors. I'd love to be a sort of plein air writer, um, but I just know <laughs> it, won't, it won't work. Oh, I can't even pa- uh, hang a painting in my workroom. For what else is a painting but a window? My thoughts are s- always sucked outward um, and I'm entranced. So um, I tend to spend a lot of time working in a blank cubicle with my back to the window. Which of course means that I spend a lot of uh, every day being very, very restless. Uh, I'm forever getting up to, uh, to leave the room to stand outside in the sunlight for a minute and sniff the wind and I look at the sky and I listen to the birds and I listen to the state of the ocean and this sort of constant up and down, this this sort of twitchy in and out, it's like the compulsive adjustment of a valve. Half the time I think I feel better for having done it, Um, sort of jumped up and had a bit of a sniff. Um, The rest of the time I'm overcome with regret. Um, The grown-up in me sort of, concedes that, you know, at least I've got a taste of the day, but the kid in me um, can only feel more keenly what I've missed, you know, that I've wasted yet another good day on mere work. Um, So now and again, I I can't stand it. I I just bolt. I pile a few chattels into the Land Cruiser and and I put my foot down. And I know lots and lots and lots of Australian men and women who are possessed by this same impulse, um the sort of thirst for the wide-open road, to drive all day until sunset and then just pull over in a different state of mind, or maybe even in a different state if you living in one of the smaller states of our Federation. Um, being from Western Australia, that's a bridge too far. It takes about three days to get to the, the state line. Um, there's o- often no real um, purpose to these excursions beyond the immediate sensation of simply being in the open. Um, or the pleasure of rolling a swag out in a creek bed or in a hollow between dunes Um, or just to sit by the fire and feel the stars come out like goose flesh in the heavens and I don't, to be honest I don't think I really seriously think of it as escape to me it's a a homing impulse lying under the sky at night I I feel a sense of return Uh, this feeling of homecoming is not that unlike the way that I felt as a kid um, coming in the back door at dusk um, when the the homely smell of the laundry and the slap of the screen door behind me restored me to myself um, in moments. But as I'm sure any one of you can attest, going home is not always a cosy experience, especially when you're grown up. These trips of mine, these homecomings can also be harsh and bewildering uh, because the places that are dearest to me can be hard to reach, hence the land cruiser. They're austere, they're savage, they're unpredictable. And like taciturn cousins and leery in-laws, they're not always very forthcoming. They're not always welcoming. They don't always actually come out and say what they mean. They tend to give you the stink eye at breakfast and um, they make you stay as uncomfortable as possible. So I have to you know, confess that my island home, my, my home range, um, is neither lush nor congenial. It can often be exhausting, spiky, dry, irritating, even humiliating. And I often leave um, from these homecomings, these excursions. Um, I often come back feeling spent and shriven as any guest at a Christmas lunch who does driving home, bitching, wondering why the bloody hell you're bothered. Um, (laughs) Faint note of universal recognition there. (laughs) Family. But homecomings, aren't they about submitting to the uncomfortably familiar? Like a helpless, a hapless adult child, you go back for more despite yourself because you're eternally trying to figure out the puzzle of relationships with siblings, with parents, all those perplexities of heritage, dependency and belonging. But you do get sustenance from this, um, from the actual trying, the going back, um, by remaining open to mystery. You get the sense that if you give up on home, if if you give up on family, you suspect that you'll be left with nothing. My country leans in on you. It weighs down hard, like family. And I've spent a lot of time watching Australians do this family dance, urban and prosperous as they are, living beyond the constraints of weather and nature in a way that their forebears could never have foreseen. Many seek to engage in an almost ritual courtship with the outdoors. We spend literally, truly billions each year on off-road vehicles, on caravans, campers and outdoor recreational equipment. And true, some of this is just capitalist fetish. Um, some of it is the echo of an old and largely outworn mythology of rugged outdoorsy individualism. You might just want to call that settler kitsch. Um, and much of, this, uh, much of this spending is purely aspirational in all the senses of the word, including the, the, the John Howard sense of the word. Sorry, that was an in-joke. Um, but even so, millions of Australians are still eager to be out hiking and climbing, camping, kayaking, fishing, surfing, sailing or exploring at the first available opportunity. And actually, look, it's a very big island, but they're a bit of a pest because at certain times of the year it's quite hard, despite the size of the island, to avoid the kitted hordes. Um, but I'm just being grumpy. Um, <laughs> this cultural impulse isn't just a matter of Escaping the indoor servitude of working life, I think there's a palpable communal outward urge, a searching impulse, something embedded in our physical culture and in our sensory makeup. To my mind, it speaks of an implicit collective understanding that the land is still present at the corner of our eye, it's still out there awaiting us, but also carried within like some sense memory. You don't need to lurk in a camping store to pick up on this vernacular current. Um, Half an hour at a suburban barbecue will probably do you. Um, You can see it in people's behaviour uh, and certainly in their dress in as much as what they utter. Uh, Australians can stand around and eat and drink in equipment and gear that suggests that they're all about to go surfing or hiking or cycling or orienteering at any moment. And look, case in point, you know, turns up in a surfing shirt. Um, for somewhere, I think, back in their subconscious, they really want to. There's this such restlessness, such yearning. It, it's down hard and deep, like a taproot of a half-forgotten tree. And I don't think it shows any sign of withering away. For despite how ordered and franchised and air-conditioned contemporary life has become. The land remains a lowering presence at the edge of people's minds. We've imbibed it almost despite ourselves. It's in our bones like a sacramental ache waiting for us. If not a felt presence, then a looming absence. Truly, I cannot count the number of times that I've been standing in a supermarket queue where a complete stranger just blurts out app pro of absolutely bloody nothing that I can make out um, that one day I mean look they just turn around and tell you this one day you know I'm going to chuck everything I'm going to blow it all off the house the job and I'm just going to go I'm going to pack up the tojo I'm going to pull the kids out of school I'm going to hang a trailer on the back and quote unquote I'm just going to see what's out there (laughs) which is touching bewildering you know you've got your milk and your If this yearning wasn't real, um, advertisers wouldn't spend their billions exploiting it. And then here you can cue the music um, and you can open the lens to the rosy light of late afternoon, which is the only time you can actually shoot photography in Australia because the rest of the time you just give it up, it's too hard. But if you open the camera to the rosy light of late afternoon and, and then you dub in the breathy voiceover from an alpha male, um, behold, the glory of Kakadu. The endless beaches of Fraser Island. They tend to get broader and broader as the thing goes on, you know. The blood-red breakaways of Karajini. The dark and primordial mysteries of the Tarkine. The miracle of Lake Air in flood. And here, here is the vehicle to get you there. <laughs> Here's the shoes to wear when you arrive. And here are the drinks that you need to celebrate having bothered to make the effort. Well, you know, to sell something disposable and ephemeral you need to set it against something truly substantial, something remarkable and and enduring. And in Australia, what's more impressive than the land? Culturally, psychologically, commercially, it's truly the gold standard in our part of the world. Landscape continues to press in, leaning through our windows and our insect screens, creeping at the edge of consciousness. And no matter how we live, no matter what we tell ourselves, The sublimated facts of our physical situation constantly resurface. The land continues to make its presence felt. Until climate change began to erode the modern sense of immunity in the northern hemisphere, this pressure of nature was almost unique, I think, um, to Australia amongst the developed nations. After all, feeling subject to nature is supposedly the province of the poor in undeveloped or in developing places. But the recent vulnerability of first world countries is um, quite a sudden reversal, especially in North America and in Europe. In in Australia, it's always been our vivid, steady state. If anything, climate change has only intensified what Australians have always felt, which is, I suppose, at best um, mildly besieged. And this traditional sense of unpredictability and conditionality is unlikely to fade away as extremes of weather become more commonplace and more brutal and perhaps more catastrophic. Nowadays, bushfires don't merely threaten the timbered outskirts of um, small Australian towns. They have infiltrated and ravaged the inner suburbs of capital cities, panicking and paralysing major populations. Similarly, Major flood events are no longer just the nightmare of rural riverside communities. In recent years, coastal capitals like Brisbane have been calamitously uh, inundated. And in other places, over west of course, in Perth, some cities are so drought weakened that um, without desalination plants, they would no longer be viable settlements at all. Um, and people like Jared Diamond and Tim Flannery predicted uh, that a long, long time ago. So we've been drinking seawater for about four or five years. (laughs) Diesel-powered. Clearly, geography and weather have never been less incidental, less likely to remain mere backdrop. You only need to stand on a street corner in the central business district of Perth on a summer afternoon and watch the desert dust fall like red rain upon the gridlocked traffic to know that. Whatever else we've told ourselves, we are not yet out of nature and nature is not yet done with us. Ours has always been a conditional permeable settlement and it remains so for wherever Australians live, there it is at any moment like an ancient family memory, the shimmering distance in which the horizon slips and crawls in the heat, the backdrop pulsing and twitching, always threatening ...to foreground itself. The land continues to confound and enchant, appall and inspire. It fizzes, groans, creaks and roars at the edge of consciousness. But I think a a geographically thin skin is a boon to our culture. Um, We need to guard against growing too thick a hide in this sense at least. For, Isn't it good for the spirit being reminded that there is something bigger to consider than ourselves, something older, richer, more complex and mysterious than humankind. Despite our immense success, our mobility and adaptability, there is still an organic material reality over which we have little control and for which we can claim exactly no credit. Humans are a brilliant species and they're an exception, a privileged minority. Few humans are luckier than Australians. Generations of experience have transformed us. Those who arrived in antiquity were changed and changed and changed by the continent. The land quite literally made them anew. And those of us whose roots are not as deep are startled to learn just how different we are from our immigrant forebears. For our island is a place that soon renders people strangers to their own ancestors. It has real Ongoing power to shape people. It influences our thoughts and habits, our language and our sensory register. However stubbornly we resist it, it knocks us about. It bends us out of shape and yet it moves us on somehow. In my own lifetime, Australians have come to use the Aboriginal English word country to describe what my great-grandparents might have called territory. Slowly, fitfully, geographic ambivalence and diffidence have given way to a new respect. Patriotism has evolved to include a reverence for the land itself rather than the nation and the passion to defend the natural world as if it were family. This is why we write about the island, the place, the natural physical world. This is why we paint it from love. And wonder, irritation, and fear, hope, and despair. Because like family, it might be hard to understand, but it simply refuses to be incidental. Thank you.
0: Well, Tim has left quite a few minutes because he's really interested in hearing your questions and comments, so I'm hoping that someone will make a start
1: that's a very nice way of saying I'm too miserable to go for the full 50 minutes. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: not at
3: all. Anyone? You don't ah, have to. It's,
1: sorry, not, yes? it's not school.
3: Um, I want to thank you for putting into words stuff I've been trying to um, sort out myself because I'm an Australian artist but have lived in the UK for 40 years and I've never felt comfortable with the landscape here And you really nicely encapsulated why I can't do landscape. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go to Morocco, but I can't do here. And the color's not right, it's not scratchy enough, it's it's too comfortable. And um, I really thank you very much. I am also tell you that you sent me on a very long journey, because having lived in this country for a long time, I actually went to Perth and drove up all of that coastline and the Mitchell Highlands, and a lot of it's down to you, because I wanted to understand that country that I came from. So thank you very
1: much. Thank you. Well, that's a heavy burden of responsibility, <laughs> but I'll, I'll bear it manfully. Uh, let's see. I'll pass it down. No. Yeah, you've got
0: a nice
1: big voice. What I'm curious about is... You could do the voiceover for the ad. <laughs> you might have to go a bit broad, though, that's all. What surprises me, what you're saying about your, your
0: reaction is, in England, we're always taught, Australians, all but about 80-90% of them, they're within 20 miles of the ocean. You've talked about hearing the sounds of the ocean. Mm. What surprises me, as I completely understand it, is how this vast space... Permeates the whole of your psyche, and why that happens and the way it does when you live so proximate yeah, to, that's the a, the, to the edge. That's a great question. The inside mm. really does <laughs> emerge in everything you do. Your writing, in particular, mm-hmm. even in Cloudstreet. Yeah, it's, it, to me, it is an amazing thing. But how well, deep do you reckon
1: it is? Well, well, it's a it's, it's a terrific question. I mean, because you know this is a big island continent, most of which is very 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 hard to live in. So we we do mostly, you know, live in urban environments, which are thinly spread around the, the, the very margin, the li- on, on the littoral, really. Um, and it's almost as though we have this enormous boiling house with a you know white hot uh, tin roof that you, that you live on the veranda. Uh, and and you and it's it's not because we're weaklings. It's just because it makes sense. I mean that. You know, the closer you are to the coast, the better your chance to find that those those mega sources of fresh water that, that that run out of the out of the hinterland. Um, and also, it's cooler, and um, and you, you do get you know respite f- um, in that sense. But I think it's like sitting on the veranda, you know, with this this baking, groaning, <coughs> shuddering, creaking house at your back. Um, that means that you can never forget it. Um, you might not be in it, in the interior all the time, but it's not going to ever let you forget that it's there. The same way that, you know, when, when you live in a, in, under an iron roof, when it's cooling and it's heating up, it's always groaning and cracking and and grumbling. And I have, you know, friends go and stay. They're up, bolt upright in their bed half the night as the house <laughs> slowly unwinds from the stressful day that it's had, you know. Um, so that's the best way I can... I can I can sort of account for, um, and I think that. But there was also something oceanic about the about the desert uh, and about the interior that people that we don't always talk about. In fact, I think there's someone in the you here, Joel. Someone here are doing a PhD about this, as it happens, about the sea and the and the and the desert. And I think there's when you when you go out into the desert. I mean, you, you can think of it in oceanic terms, just in terms of expanse and and all of that. But Fly over it, and it, it's waves. It's it was sea. It's um it's showing everything about sea, and there's, there's the there's the movement of, of waves and time, and water and force and wind. Um, it's it's just there, um, and you can lose yourself in it. You can drown in it just as quickly as you you can in the ocean.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, the light's brutal. It's to the point where someone can be sitting under. Tree in the shadows, and you won't see them, um, which is handy. I mean, it's certainly ha- has <laughs> it's handy if you're a macropod. I mean, um, you know, kangaroos and, and wallabies in particular, they they seek shelter there partly you know because it's cooler and they and they rest, but partly because nothing can see them. Um, so you, I don't know how many times I've been walking along and had the tripe frightened out of me because some macropod leaps up, uh, startled. Like my conscience. (laughs) Uh, Thanks very much for the books, for the
0: talk, everything. I've
2: been thinking recently about the immediate coastline in Australia and how, you know, when we think of sea and oceans, they're really massive things, but actually... um, I think there's something about the coastline in Australia that's almost part of the land, like the liquid part of the land. It's it's mm. part of our lives, like the land is. Mm. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that.
1: Oh, you know, if you're a, 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 any English person can tell you, um, or a Scot, or or or, or 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 any Celt, you know, the Irish. Um, if you're an islander, you're a, you're a maritime person as much as a terrestrial person. You know, you you look to the sea. For threat, You look to the sea for um, reward, for surprise, for, for uh, you know, rescue and redemption um, or just for an event, you know, the monotony of being an islander. Um, if you've, ever, you know, you've been to the Greek islands, everyone just comes down to the... I, I lived there for a while. Everyone, I started doing it myself. In the afternoons, you go in just to see the boat come in, see the ferry, see who got off the ferry. You know, we'd all stand around and say, oh, that's an interesting looking one, you know. There was a certain species of Greek that you know, male who just go down to score, obviously one way or another. Um, but I think you know, the, the the ocean is a producer of events as well. I mean, sudden storms, arrivals, um, and you know, we 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 that's how we got there. That's how, and we're and we we're, we're water people. I mean, 70% of the, the Earth's surface is water. 70% of our bodies is water. We spend almost a year as marine creatures before we're born, and I—I and I, I, uh, I guess I was reminded of that um, last summer when I took my granddaughter down to the to the to the beach and gave her her first swim, um, and and lowered her into the into the sea, and it has a strange shiver of recognition as she went went in. It was almost as though like, oh I remember, I remember this. <laughs> Um, I think it was a bit warmer um, inside her mother than it was that day down at the beach, <laughs> but um, only by a few degrees. But so I think we are, you know, regardless of you know Australians, I think humans are um, sea people. We just forget it. You know, it's how we used to get anywhere. It's where we're from. We, you know, our, our origins are from the sea. We, you know, eventually, you know, you go far enough back and we crawled out of we crawled out of the ocean onto land. Um, or some primordial slime. There's romance for you.
2: <laughs> Hi, Tim. I'm, I'm from Perth. Um, I've been living here... No since. visible
1: scars? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Probably a few, but you can't see them. Yeah. Uh, no, but I've been here for a very, very long time. Um, um, but I did grow up in Perth, and I know what you write about. I think you were shaped very, very heavily by your experiences growing up in Perth and in Western Australia... Um, as, as I was as well. Um, but I wonder, do you see um, that there is possibly a very different experience of someone growing up there now? Um, yeah. Perth, in particular, is, is mm-hmm. not the place I grew up in. It's a, it's a very, very different place. Yeah. Um, and your reference to, uh, you know, children going into the sea, well, there's a whole lot of kids who are growing up who don't even know how to swim. Mm. It's a very different experience now. And do you... Do you consider that what it is to be Australian now is possibly very different from what what you have had as, as your influences in growing up?
1: Y- yes, I think. Well, yeah, yes and no. I think. Um, yeah, I, I think I know. I know exactly what you mean. I think um, the culture is changing all, all the time. The, the urban environments are changing. Our politics has changed. The demographics are changing. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily ch- completely changes the conditions under which we live, but I think it, what has changed is the way that we view each other and how we get on with each other. And what the, I think we're living in a different dispensation um, from when I was a, was a working-class um, suburban child. Um, I, I think the, the strata of my childhood was duller, flatter... Fairer, less colourful but yeah it was more democratic um, where there was more social mobility Um, Australia has a you know um, a class system like England but not as codified not as safely understood not as honest in a sense Um, that's that's that was interrupted you know thanks to uh, government intervention I mean when I I grew up in a family where nobody had ever finished school. Um, Most of my parents and their siblings had never even finished primary school. Um, I was the first person in my family to finish high school and the first to go to university. The only reason I could go to university is that we had a change of government and a a change of heart, essentially, where government said the status quo, the way we live with, with this... With these barriers between people that are purely about the origins of of of, of where they've grown up, um, we, you know this this what this mustn't stand. So they they intervened and made the first thing they did was to make education free, and that was a, I just can't tell you that what revolutionary impact that had on my life and people like me. Um, you know, I, and I'm aware of that because you know even. Um, there are members of my family who can't who, who who can't read my books they follow my work and thanks to audio books and you know film adaptations they love going to the theater and seeing s- stuff <coughs> but without an audiobook they can't they can't read um, my work and we've now we're in a period of so I'm still conscious of that you know class uh, issue um, but we've we've gone from that revolution, we're in a period of sort of counter-reformation where all those things are being wound back and now we've sort of fallen into this notion of accepting almost as though we've internalised Margaret Thatcher's preposterous gag that there's no such thing as society. We've been... Successive governments of, you know, the left and the right have internalised that idea and now a poor person, you know, or an illiterate person, you know, their illiteracy or their poverty is somehow a manifestation of their character... Not uh, of their of their origins, of their circumstances. So I think that's changed. Um, the spread of urban environments has changed. I think people are, you know, have cut off a little bit more from from the physical world than they were. And I think also just the way we all live as prosperous um, uh, first world people has cut people off from each other and from reality because p- people are people are living like this. Um, it's been fun walking around the last few days in, in London, just having people bowl into you because they're <laughs> storming along and they're, and they're looking at their device and they're texting away. And if it wasn't for the fact that you can anticipate them and step around them, you know, there would be people with head injuries in <laughs> e- e- everywhere. So, the, so some of it's some of it's about differences in demographics. Some of it's about the. the, the Differences in politics, um, and some of it's about the different way that we live. Um, so, I mean, part of my work as an uh, this is not to do with my literary work, my main job, but part of my work as an activist is to remind people that the physical world is still there, it's still available, um, and by and large, it's democratic, it's it's free. You can be you, know, you can be out in it um, if you if you detach yourself from from your um, from your device but you know and you can be out in it if there's someone safe to be with you know there are all lots of so yes it, it, there's, I wouldn't want you to think that um, that I'm trying to perpetuate some form of nostalgia but I, th- I think we are you know I think by and large we are still subject to nature in a way that know um, yeah, that's that, that carries forward from um, from the conditions of my childhood. So sometimes I think that the natural world, you know, might be the only thing that defeats the politics. Yeah, no, go for it. You've got a big voice.
0: Uh, I'm applying for university at the moment, which is quite Um, nerve-wracking, but I had to write a personal statement, and my first paragraph was about... um, What is a
1: personal statement?
0: Oh, God, you don't even want to know. It's horrible. Whoever invented it should be punished. Um, Anyway, my my first paragraph was about um, Australian Gothic, and what I was really surprised about was that... um, I was reading two modern pieces, and they portrayed the landscape as something hostile, as something that sort of even hated us. Um, and there were, in the one book, which was called The White Earth, there were spirits of the land, um, which almost attacked this um, white boy who, who got lost in the landscape. And I thought that that kind of ho- hostile or um, vulnerable relationship with the land was something that belonged to the early settlers and not something that belonged to... Um, modern white Australians. I wonder what you thought about
1: that. Oh no, I think there is a, I, I think that there's no question that um, you know, and I, and I only probably only glancingly re- referred to it as that sense of being besieged. There's no question that s- since settlement um, that theme of fear, of unease um, which, you know a, or, and bafflement um, and you can see it in the sh- in the show people, you know people showed up with their paints and just painted what wasn't there. Um, and it's fascinating I and mean, it's heartrending actually to watch it. Um, and there's a, there's a few um, quite um, simple um, pieces uh, in, in the show where Aboriginal people were given the implements of, of European art and they, they, because they're completely um, at home and they've absorbed into their psyche, into their body, the shapes and profiles and physiognomy of, of the of the animals and the the landscape they reproduce them perfectly accurately um, and yet it took generations for for the you know these clever um, white, white folks to to get the birds and animals half right um, the, the The paintings that we've been bickering over um, you and us uh, it just and we lost it out you know fair fair dogs to you. Um, um, of the ca- kangaroo and the... What was the other thing? It was an emu, wasn't it? Dingo. Um, just completely inaccurate. Um, it was a bit hard because he was doing it from skins that they put together and blew up and all that. But even, even so, um, um, it's interesting. that There's a painting in there. I can't remember... Is it, is it John Lewin? There's a painting of fish with these beautiful colours. It's almost like a modern painting. It was an, it's an exception. It sticks out like dog's balls, doesn't it? Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> But it's just—it's just so vivid, so modern. So people were even in that beautiful panorama of King George Sound, of Albany, you know, which where I used to live. There's a huge pleasure for me in, in in looking through the, you know, looking at that as something familiar and familial, and and also seeing how much they got it wrong, you know, how they somehow sprayed Agent Orange on it, so there weren't trees at the top of the hills where they were. Um, it, obviously, they're just inconvenient for the panorama, so they <laughs> just, just chain it all out of the way in the, in the, on the page, you know. Um, there, yes, there has always been a, a, an unease, and I don't think it's ever completely gone away. And I think it's because, even at this end of history, where we've taught ourselves to be you know, the masters of the universe. There's either that f- sense, uh, and that's a tradition, you know, a traditional trope, the sense of not being sure if we belong. And I, that, I don't think that's quite the live argument that it, that it was for my parents' generation, and f- say for the generation of the prefects who got on the boat in the 50s. Um, I don't. I mean, it's not completely resolved, but I don't think it's quite the big deal that um, people make it out to be. But I think there is still this unease about what the land is. Capable of, if you turn your back on it, then it's going to do something. And it, I'm sure that physical part of it just simply comes from people who would turn around and be lost, or they'd turn around and their kid was gone. You know, and there's a big painting tradition of lost children. Um, and, and I think it's just about scale and scope. Um, and yeah, there is a tradition of, of, of gothic uh, gothic work that, you know, here you, you know you had the moors, just you know a big big windy space where you could you could, go over, you could go over a ridge and then another ridge and then you were alone and that's when you get some you know, dark doings. Um, it's fun. You know. <laughs>
2: um, Tim, would, is it fair to ask that the landscape, does it start actually as the first character when you start to write a new book? And I'm not actually even thinking just the Australian landscape but also like in the writer's the overriding feeling I always remember is the dark, muddy bog, you know, and the sort of the characters then become sort of dark and muddy, yeah, and I like think in breath a, I, with the yeah, ocean. Yeah,
1: I think that's a fair comment. Um, it's not so much about landscape um, as about the, the the ecosystem. I mean, I, I work from the ecosystem up, so uh, I tend to go... You know, I tend to think about... A, I, I, I get... Interested in or bothered by a place, um, and and the place itself provides the logic for the narrative for the stories, um, it, and it goes place, then character, almost as though the, the 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 ecosystem produces produces its own creatures, you know, and the stories that are logical within the parameters of where you find yourself. Um, it's it's a bit like bit like plonking yourself at the side of a huge salt pan um, and if you sit there long enough something will happen um, and you know, like in a B-West uh, it'll usually be a sort of a speck and it'll, you know, there's one big long shot and it'll, as you watch it'll get bigger and then there'll be sort of a, um, a wobbly figure emerging and of course he'll be dragging a saddle um, mm-hmm. and an empty six gun um, and that's, you know, that's a, it's a dumb analogy but it's pretty much how it works for me. I, I'm i in a place, I'm thinking about a place um, where I I'm, I'm either feel safe or I feel bothered enough to stay interested and from that the figures come and then I think, oh you look interesting, what are you about? And I tend to start writing them before I know really who they are and the process of writing a novel for two or three or four or five years, I know a lot more about that first character and the people uh, associated with her or him um, two or three years down the track than I do, you know, the day that they hit the page. Um, does that make any sense? But, yeah, so, you know, my latest book is is set in an urban environment um, and it, that's the ecosystem that, that was interesting to me and the characters that emerged from that. Um, so it tends to be, you know, in this instance is a gritty sort of... Um, you know, um, urban environment of the working poor. Um, In Cloud Street it was a a house, um, just ecosystems.
0: Thank you for a wonderful talk, just absolutely incredible. I'm interested in your thoughts on storytelling. We've had sort of 60,000 years of storytelling in Australia and you're a great storyteller and you talk about people walking on the street and bumping into each other because they're concentrating on their devices. You've got grandchildren. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of storytelling and passing those stories down.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be too hard on the devices. I mean, they're handy. They obviously are. They're making a lot of our lives um, easier. And I like to think, in my more magnanimous moments, that they're they're part of our storytelling tradition. I mean, you know, before before we started sort of capturing story on paper. Um, and, you know, we were doing it on, on, on um, on barks and cave walls. Um, and before that, we were singing them. You know, we were, you know, we were literally, you know, because what, what's a painting or a, or a story over the campfire? But you know, I am w- here. I was here. You know, something on the on the cave wall is saying oh, I, was here. Um, I am here. I exist. Um, this was, this was my life. This was my nightmare. This was my fear. My aspiration um, i you know i think whether we you know if whether we're still talking to each other um on the page or on the screen or over the kitchen table you know it's but we're you know we just have to keep talking to each other we have to keep um exercising that part of our um, you know of our of ourselves i, I I'm pretty sure we always well i don't i don't think culture i don't think story is a, is an add-on I, I i think it's a deep um, um, integral necessary part of of what it means to be a human and the way that we tell stories will will change it has changed over time um, so I, you know I'm only fearful on the footpath i'm not that fearful about the future in, in terms of culture you know um, and yeah, I, I think just we just need to look each other in the face now and again. But let's face it, we had the phone for years. How many great stories, sob stories, a lot of the time, did you get over the phone from your from your family members, you know, or from your girlfriend? Um, that was that was supposed to be you know alienating us from from one another. So I'm not I'm not that gloomy about story and narrative. I mean, occasionally when I go to universities or, you know, meet people from the universities, I get a little anxious because story is um, not very um, cool. Uh, you're, you're supposed to, you know, book, a novel is supposed to be about play, intellectual play, but telling a story is kind of naff. Uh, and I just, I beg to differ. But I, I think readers beg to differ by and large as well. That's That'd very Philistine of me, wasn't it? Okay. So you're, you better make this a good one. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> well,
2: maybe it, it sets the tone um, thanks for that talk it was absolutely brilliant um, whilst you were talking my mind kept going uh, wandering to Thomas Hardy um, and, and back to Dirt Music and the lines that you quote uh, from his poem in there uh, and, I, and, and for me he's a writer that holds that tension between somebody who, who who struggles with the indoors and the outdoors and the movement between the two um, was always seeking uh, to, to move out I was wondering if he was an important writer to you or or if you could say a little bit more about um, his, his presence in your work.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think I recovered from the mayor of Carcerbridge in uh, <laughs> year 12. And I think if I, if, if I could get past being taught um, th- that book uh, as, a, as a teenager and then go on to, to love him properly um, and kiss and make up, so, as it were. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he is, he, is imp- he is important to me. And it, it's interesting because you know, we're talking about this sort of strange... What, what feels like these epochal changes and if ever there was a if ever there was a writer c- caught on the on the edge he was living on the kind of veranda of of, of his own in terms of, um, of of this country and the change that it was that it was going through um, and you know he got his fingers burnt too uh, yeah he, he's a he's a he's a great he's a you know he's a he's a he's a great one and in in you know, a in a different way faulkner and um and the americans of the of the south were, were were big influences um um on me because they they were they had a kind of humility about where they were they um and a and a reverence for where they were they just realized that where they were was worthy of addressing and and the way people spoke—normal people, uh, ordinary, humble people—the way they spoke and the way they lived was worthy of m- making poetry out of, and music from, um, and tragedy from. And uh, so, yeah, my—I my, guess my greatest, you know, writerly heroes were those people who, who owned their vernacular language and who owned, you know, th- their place and stuck with it and made something of it, you know, or tried to. It's it's a bit like, you know, Jacob wrestling with the angel, you know. You don't always come off um, the winner, but it's, it's an interesting battle. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.